podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. If you're coming in just now, this is part two of the story of Sanjay Lazar, who lost his family in the Air India Flight 182 bombing in 1985 and has a new book series coming out about his experience. The link to the first of these, On Angel's Wings, will be in the show notes. And with that, we're back to Suhag Shukla interviewing Sanjay Lazar. It was really, uh, you know, an experience that I would not want even my worst enemy to go through. But the way the, the love of the people of Cork was just so incredible. I can't tell you. And here I was a young kid. I was probably, you know, the youngest person around there. And, you know, I'd I'm, hang I'm out. just imagining that that's what's been going through my head is that you have families, of course, um, and, and all of these officials. But then there's you, <laughs> 17, um, alone. Uh, I mean, you have a friend, Ashwin, and maybe made some other Ivan, Ivan, who was my sister's godfather, was there with me. But and your god, yes. He was with, you know, helping all the crew, all the families. Mm-hmm. He was he became like a volunteer head at that time there. But, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a hundred other friends. You don't have family. Yeah. You're alone. You know, you know the, the 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 pain inside is 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 deadly. It's and I'd identified, written all this down, and they started looking for bodies. And Suhag, I mean, a lot of the big journalists who've written books on this, you know, Canadian American journalists. There's Salim Jiva. There's Terry Milowski, who's from CBC, who's very famous, and Kim Bolan, who was an investigator. You know, she writes that. You know, here was this young kid coming every single day to the hospital. And I'd come in the morning, I'd breakfast in the hotel and come in the morning and, you know, wait all day till all the boats, everybody had gone back. And, you know, you know, you know, you don't know. There is nobody, you know, there's no family or body that you can claim. And, you know, in that situation of desperation, you want to cling to something. You know, it's... You you need to uh, you know it's not closure but you know you're yearning to you know you want to you just want something yeah you need something you see yeah. and you need you need to hold your family or, or you know identify them or and every day for the next twenty one days I kept coming there you know and and uh, around the seventeenth or sixteenth day. I had decided to call it quits and uh, sorry, it was about the 15th because my dad's younger brother who was in Cochin had come to London and he wanted to meet me and he called me to London. So I took a flight back in the early morning and I met with him and spoke and I told him that, you know, you go back, let me handle this. I'll look after this, but uh, I'd rather you didn't come here and you know, complicate. I'll I'll handle things. So he went back, and I came back. Literally, you know, Cork to London is just an hour and ten minutes, hour and a half at best. I was back by the evening. In the evening, when I was re- landed, I got a message in the hotel that, you know, they've identified a body. So go. So I called one of the guardai. The police are called the guardai, and we rushed. And they gave me a form and I filled it out again. They showed me some photographs and I said, you know, this looked so much like my sister. My baby sister. 
and it was the same age, same height. And I said, oh my God, I wish I'd been here in the morning. Why didn't we do this? And we went through the entire identification process. And it was late at night and I came back to the hotel. You know, we'd identified and they said, this is about a 90% match, you know, for what you've discovered. And, uh, you know, I think everything being okay. The next morning you can, you know, we may be able to conclusively identify this with doctors. Now, remember, this is 1985. DNA evidence had not yet been discovered. It got discovered the following year in, 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 a, in a Yorkshire rape case. I mean, if you Google and stuff like that, you'll find it was first used in, in legal uh, cases. So we had only dental records, if at all, and, you know, general appearance, birthmarks and stuff. Now we'd reached about 88 to 90% confirmation. And I was, I won't say happy, but I was contented that, you know, at least I'd found my sister, if nobody else. And I went back to the hotel late at night that night, and I was having dinner in the, in the restaurant, coffee shop down. And there was a family, maybe a table away. And they asked, you're sitting alone, you know, do you want to join us or something? So I said, no, you know, I sat and spoke to them. And they said, have you found your family? Whom did you lose? And that was the common bonding conversation. You know, we didn't talk of politics. We didn't talk of whether we spoke of who died and what were they doing. And we showed pictures to each other. And that's how, you know, as, as next of kin, as victims uh, of the family that died, that's what we did. And I spoke to this family and, you know, they said, oh, we've identified body number XYZ. I said, I thought to myself, X, Y, Z. I said, I've identified that body as my sister. You know, and everything is, so they said, no, 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 look at her. And they had her photographs and they showed, and I had my sister's photograph. And I said, look at it, they're identical, the similar age, same height, oh. similar weight. And, you know, we, I didn't want, and that, that old lady was, you know, they were a family of three, started crying. She broke down. And I said, God, she said, this can't be, you know, this is our grandchild. Is a, and I said, oh God, you know, this is something really, really, I didn't know what to do when I went to the room and I just couldn't sleep. I tossed and Yeah, what a strange, what a strange place and to be. Somebody sitting in a restaurant next to you. And you're and fighting or not fighting, but you're well, contesting whether the body is their granddaughter or your sister I, I can't even I can't even imagine so what I did was when I woke up I I you know called the guard I know I had a guard I guard I mean the cop who used to come every morning and pick me up or I used to go with some of the cops to the hospital and I told him listen there's some confusion and conflict and the last thing that I want to do is Take someone else's child home to, to bury, you know, or or have somebody else take my sister. And we need to, you know, I was a young kid then, but I wanted to take this, this baby home. I did, really. And and this is not to say that either the Gardai or the Interpol or the hospital did anything wrong. But, you know, it is a question of probability. It could have been, you know, people can match 95% sometimes. And, you know, because you didn't have DNA, because you were looking at the physical body, 
and the clothing and the height and the weight. Now, that's a very broad spectrum. And at this point, you know, the bodies have been in the ocean yes. for, for more than 36, 48 yes. I mean, yes. days. We don't know on right. which day those bodies were recovered. So, yes, right. that's the other thing. So, they've, they've, you know, sort of mummified and, you know, they're, and also they've been, you know, exposed to an explosion. Right. All of them were disfigured. Right. Okay. Right. So I called up my, you know, Celia, that's her godmother, Ivan's wife. And then I spoke to, also spoke to my aunt in, in Chennai. And we tried to figure out whether she had ears pierced, nose pierced. You know, in Indians, we do all that. Right. And what you, you, you know, those are the distinguishing marks. Right. Whether, you know, Tandita had a ears pierced and she had. So I ticked that off, ears pierced. And he said, their baby also had ears pierced, nose pierced. You know, you know, and it went down like that. Wow. And what it finally came to is that uh, I had a picture of Sandita in, in a dress we expected her to wear. Mm -hmm. You know, because as Indians in those days, you know, you have maybe four or five very, you know, hot dresses and you want to wear them to birthdays. You want to wear them to... So I'd given them photographs and I said, I think she'd wear this. And um, were pearls. Hmm. Her neck and her photograph had pearls. And I said, you see, my sister was wearing pearls and this baby had pearls. Hmm. And you won't believe Suhag. Their, their child also was wearing pearls. Oh, gosh. And the difference was that my sister was not wearing rice pearls. She and was their wearing... daughter was wearing rice pearls. Rice pearls have a different, you know, if you right. know pearls. Right, they look like rice. The shape and the design. And my aunt said, no, no, I bought those pearls. And I know it was my gift. And Sanjay checked the pearls. And I asked these guys. And then they came back to me around lunchtime that day. No, maybe about 2.30 in the afternoon. And said, you know, you were right. And we're sorry. You know, the pearls are different. And now when we look deeper, maybe the hair texture is different from yours. And, you know, it was, wow. it was one of those things that, you know, you felt inside that, you know, they'd been, you know, died again or yeah. you'd been robbed. But uh, they took a sign off from me then. They asked me, um, do you want to contest this? And I said, no, if you decide, I would hate to deprive someone and I'd hate them to have taken my sister. Right. And if we have, con you see, subsequent bombings, terrorist accidents, all use DNA. Mm -hmm. But this is before the dawn of DNA. Right. Fingerprint. So you had basically just dental records and physical appearance, really nothing else. Or blood and blood type is so universal in any case. Right. So we went through the next thing and I, I signed off. And I thought I'd go and talk to that family. But, you know, uh, I saw just one, I think the son. And I just wished them well. And, you know, I said, I'm glad. And he, said, he was very nice to me. He said, you know, I hope you find your, your sister. I said, it's the whole family I'm looking for. So it's not only sister. It's my dad, the mom and sister. But, you know, I'm glad. And I've written about this in my book. And I've... Uh, you know, I didn't want to identify where they were, which part of the country they were from, or who they, they were, but I'm glad they got their, you know, baby and they went and cremated her uh, at their, you know, 
or wherever. Otherwise, that body was going to be, you know, was embalmed and ready to come to Bombay with me. And, you know, this shattered me so much. And I said, God, just another day or two and I'm throwing in the towel because it doesn't seem like I'm ever going to find anybody of my family. Right. And when, because my dad was the in-flight supervisor, he would have been right in the front of the aircraft or in the near the cockpit. So there was little chance with the way they were talking about the bomb, the way the bomb went off. And I was assuming my sister and my mother would have been in the business class, so there would have been less chance for them as well. You know, it happened on the 9th, 20th day, I think. They were going to wind up. And the Royal Navy, 20th day, yeah. The Royal Navy said, you know, we're calling it a day because we can't find anybody. We've found... This is another thing. I don't know if you remember, if you look, or maybe Google, you'll see. There was the Cabbage Patch doll of my my sister, which was found on the first day. On the very first day. It's one of the first images that appeared on television of a naval diver pulling out that Cabbage Patch doll thinking it was a baby. Right. Now, if you Cabbage Patch dolls in those days were huge, big things. Yes. With certificates, with all that stuff. You know, and uh, that was my sister's pride and joy. Um, right. So, I said, if nothing else, you know, at least this. But on the 20th day, they fished out body number 131 and they brought it ashore and it was identified to a 99% certainty as my mother. Oh, and wow. I went through that entire process all over again and then they brought a second officer to redo the entire process because they didn't want, you know, any goof-ups and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, they were too good. They were really too good. And I will tell you that, uh, you know, we finally identified her and uh, embalmed her and then, you know, left from, from Cork Island and, and came back to London. I broke journey because there was no direct flight. Waited for the next day to leave for um, Bombay, where we'd arranged the funeral and stuff like that. So. So that was, you know, that part of of the story. And until then, you know, you're in mourning. So you don't really want to discuss how it happened, who did, what did. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We didn't even realize at that time, we didn't at least, that there was another bomb in Tokyo. And that was linked. Mm. You know, you're in that headspace to even think of all those things. Right. That realization came months and years later. Right. When everything started, you know, being dug up. But uh, yes, that was the uh, the point that, you know, we left for Bombay. And then starts the fight for the funeral. You know, there are fights amongst family members. There are fights amongst relatives. This body will be buried by me here. I will cremate this here. You know, and this tussle went on and here I am. You know, 17-year-old kid. Yeah. And I'm landing back into Bombay on an aircraft with the human remains of my f- mother and my family. And, you know, all this rubbish has broken out. And I literally didn't even want to go back. I thought to myself, let's finish, you know, all the religious proceedings here. 
yeah. cremate her and take the ashes of her back, then let everybody fight over it. Finally, those matters were resolved and uh, the funeral occurred in Bombay and uh, in my, you know, Juhu where I lived. And uh, it was a massive funeral. After that, I just, you know, started trying to rebuild life. Yeah. And then the court cases start. Mm-hmm. And you have relatives who want to claim your father's, my father's estate, my mom's estate, my house. And I started fighting all that. And, you know, they went to court and they got, I was a kid then. I was, so everybody wanted to adopt me and become my guardian. Right. Could gain control, whatever. We didn't have much, but whatever. And, you know, as a, you're a lawyer, so you know, there is an accident compensation. There is, you right. know, under ICAO rules, there are certain. So everybody wanted a piece of the pie. And, you know, relatives who had not been seen for years just showed up and, you know, started filing cases and stuff like that. And here I I just didn't know what to do. I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And what happened in the first round was, yes, I lost, uh, you know, the court did accept somebody's plea and tried to seal my house and take over. So, you know, I remember, and I'm still not 18. Okay. I'm, you know, and I said to myself that, you know, I went, I, we lived on the beach in Juhu. So it was a place I'd grown up and I just didn't know what to do. I just sort of went there and I didn't cry, but I was just wondering, you know, why was God testing me so much? Just, I mean, if you'd see. Right, so much divorce to losing your brother. Yeah, and you know, going through this, and you know, one but I had two friends who committed suicide, and then this unimaginable. And I said, you know, does he want you know, does he want me to just uh, commit suicide myself? Or I mean, I never had the, I was never suicidal, but you know, I was just it's that helplessness. You you wonder, uh, is this what you know life is about? Is this a test? What is this? You wonder. You know, there has to be a supreme being who who can see your suffering. But I decided one thing that day also. So I'm like, you know, I of course couldn't offer afford high-priced lawyers. I had no job. I was 17 years old. I was staying with my sister's godparents, Ivan and Celia's wife, you know, in their home. And uh, I'd been locked, sealed out of my own property. Somebody else wanted to take it over. I decided I'm going to I was a 12th fail at that time. I'd pass, graduate, and then I'd do law and fight all these donkeys. You know, I'd fight the hell out of them in court and, and screw them. I was, I was, I made up that my mind that day and I swore to my family, you know, the four who had gone in. That's why, you know, the book I've written is, you know, on angels' wings because I feel at every stage of my life, I've had these angels who looked after me and kept pulling me out. Right. And what happened was, you know, I didn't know anybody and I called up, uh, you know, someone who helped my dad with his divorce, who was also part of a very big law firm in Bombay called Gagra. And he said, come over, son. I know you. I, 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 I've I, been for your brother's funeral. I know about, please come. And I, I uh, you know, and he had also come to, you know, my stepmother's funeral, you know, and uh, as had a lot of big politicians, because everybody likes to be seen at, you know, these kind of, uh, I won't call them events, but, 
you know, when this tragedy, mourning and stuff is is going on. So, you know, the government, there's a representative of the president of India, somebody comes from the governor's office, somebody comes from the Canadian ICOM, everybody comes and, and offers their condolences. But when you need somebody, they're not there to assist you. But here was this one guy who said, come over to my office and let's talk about it. And I told him and he said, relax, we'll fight this. And he engaged a lawyer and the next year we started fighting. You see, uh, and I mean, you're an American lawyer. I'm sure you have similar laws, but the the confusing thing was, this was my dad's house. Mm-hmm. He bought before marrying my stepmom and I'd lived in it all my life. And somebody else was taking it over and uh, it was ironic. But you know what they said is, this was an accident, multiple accidents, multiple deaths. In cases of multiple deaths, at least in Indian law, the presumption of law is that the oldest dies first. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> this is the Indian Succession Act. Okay. Hmm. And uh, I don't know, you know, what it hap- you know what happens in the US, but if three, two or more people die at the same incident at the same time, An accident. It's how the- do you determine right. intest right. success? Right. Okay. So this brought about a very interesting point of law and and the, the lawyer from the opposite side who was claiming my dad's property said, my dad, Sampath, died first. He was the oldest. All his property devolved into three shares in, you know, with his son, his wife, and his daughter. Then she died. And she was not related directly to me. I was not a birth. She was not my birth mother. So her assets didn't come to me. They went to the sister, who was my half-sister. And when she died, her assets didn't come to me. They went to her grandmother and her uncle and her aunt who were related by blood directly with her. And this was, you know, their interpretation of the law. Right. Based on this, that the civil court, the sessions court, no, city civil court had given an order to, you know, take an inventory and steal the place. And I fought this and um, it came to the high court. Now they could not file a case directly against me till I turned 18. When I turned 18 as a major, then they sued me. And we fought this in the high court the following year. Right. So it's, you know, the bodies, the, the flowers have not wilted on the grave as yet. Right. But the court battles have begun. And I was not the only family. Let me tell you, so almost many. every crew family I knew of had plenty of, in, you know, inter-family battles. And wow. I'm sure all the passenger families had it too. Right. So it's, it's not something that was unknown. And and uh, uh, we went to the high court and then it came up for hearing and uh, there was a very, very erudite judge, late Justice Suresh, Housebed Suresh. And I remember going to the courtroom, you know, at, a, at, a, at an age where young guys are partying, they're going out dating, they're watching movies and, you know, going to this. I was sitting in high courts and and courts trying to sort my, and I'd still not got a job. I was trying for a compassionate employment at that time and were also tied up in in a fight with, uh, I won't say a fight. You know, the lawyers and the insurance companies wanted to settle the compensation battle between me and the claimants from my stepmother's side. I had that battle to also deal with. And Finally, I had to give up the compensation for my mother 
and my sister to them and say, okay, you keep this and I'll keep my dad's and, you know, we'll have peace. Because we'll they had- on at some point. <laughs> yeah, and, and I did that, not realizing whatever I'd done, they were going to now file fresh cases against me to recover the rest of the estate. And that's what happened. And, you know, I fought this and finally the, uh, the Bombay High Court ruled that the law in India does not discriminate between those related by full blood or half blood. Mm. And eventually, even a stepmother had, you know, I had succession rights, even if she was my stepmother. But be that as it may, assuming I didn't, uh, I would still inherit the entire share of my sister because whether she was my half sister or my full sister or my stepsister, she was still my sister. And so I got the, you know, the order overturned and then got everything. I fought and got it back. And, wow. you know, I got my, and, and I kept fighting. And after that, um, you know, touch wood, it's, it's things opened up. My lawyers asked me, should we file a case against, you know, the airline and their family again to recover the compensation? And I said, you know, I don't think my family would have wanted that. So it's, it's money. It's a large bit of money, but let's just move on. You know, you've got to doors and learn how to live. Here I was just turned 18 and I needed to get a job and, and start living life because I had really nothing else to do in life. Mm. Um, the moment this got sorted, Air India offered me employment and I became, you know, a crew member with them. And I joined that, that following month for training and uh, yeah. And I started fly, flying a few months down the line and, you know, so that's 40 years and you were with Air India for at least 40 years from what 37. I, I actually um, opted out. I took a voluntary retirement because I felt, you know, I had done enough and I, you know, worked enough long enough. And there was so much I wanted to do outside of, you know, the four corners of Air India. And one of them was, you know, write the book because, um, I think I owed it to them. And you know what had happened in the meantime, in these 30, 35, 37 years was that, um, you know, the family started getting together. It didn't happen in the first year. It didn't happen in the second. From the second, third year, the families of the victims realized that nothing was being done by any government. Mm. You know, and um, the clamor for an investigation the clamor for, and, 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 you know, the Irish court ruled a year later that, you know, return all the stuff to Air India and, and let them take it. RCMP took it over and they started what was their investigation. Mm -hmm. It was a good two years before they really got into, uh, you know, got down on their knees and started digging. And uh, the families started, started pushing really the Canadian families. In India, nobody, you know, wanted to even believe that it happened. There were, there was a re report by Justice Kirpal in the first year. It was like a coroner's inquest, and really nothing happened. There was a coroner's inquest in Ireland, and nothing much was said there. And uh, there was a mundane inquiry. So the family started pushing from year three, and then year four, and year. It took twenty years. Mm -hmm. it took twenty years so hard, yeah. and you know. I'll tell you this today that had 9-11 not happened, it may have taken 40. Right. The world woke up to 
terrorism when 9/11 happened and you whether you like it or not this was canada and india's you know 9/11 many years before it happened it was the worst air disaster you know terrorist disaster before 9/11 but nobody wanted to investigate it and you know we have been fortunate that some of the family members who were in canada were really strong and uh, kept lobbying kept discussing kept for our part in india you know i kept writing a lot of letters because i had then joined the trade union in air india and you know i become also become a lawyer by then and uh, studied aviation law and international law and you know so i was lobbying with various governments at that time first mr gandhi and then you know as the new prime ministers kept coming writing to the president prime minister nothing much happened on our front the action was really happening in canada because it was a uh, you know crime committed on canadian soil which was perpetrated and then that's how they started digging and there was uh, the premier of uh, ontario i think bob ray who wrote a report and there was a criminal trial before that into these two guys actually three but two of them alvinder so singh parmar and uh, bagri and malik singh Oh, no, Ray is separate. So there was a there, there were actually there were two inquiries. There were three criminal trials, right. and there were about four reports. That's so an entirely a, separate podcast, which I'll have to have you on for. You know, that's <laughs> it's it's crazy. But I'll I'll cut you know the to the chase and really come to to the short point is that the you know they called us for the criminal trial in two thousand five after. 20 years of investigation mind you and i sat there through the trial to hug barely 20 feet from the killers they were in bulletproof cages in glass enclosure house but they grinned as though you know you can't touch me you know they were just you know scowling not scowl well they were sneering at us really and we were you know in one enclosure all the families and uh, we'd given written testimonies those that wanted to but you know one by one the witnesses who were lined up either started getting hammered or killed or disappearing and in the end they were acquitted for lack of evidence it it was now what's very interesting is i don't know if you know this but after the hijacking of the previous year when parmar came to canada he was being monitored by ccs that's canadian intelligence and by the rcmp were also monitoring rayat and stuff like that for the stuff that they were doing in canada anyway and they threatened to kill indians they threatened to kill uh you know hindus all over and you know they threatened to take revenge this was the khalistani tigers the khalistani commando force and you know liberation front kill now they also threatened to kill rajiv gandhi and he was coming to the us on a state visit a couple of months a month before the same month actually that this bombing took place now i'm going back now because they had surveillance on these guys they had wiretaps hmm so they had wiretaps right from december jan till june so that's one wing of the canadian intelligence and you know what they did with those wiretaps they erased all of them 
they had recordings and this is not mine these are fbi records these are us senate intelligence committee records these are also criminal trial records and they've got recordings of guys saying this is what we're going to do this is what we're going to do this is what we you know literally without announcing the timetable they were planning it's also very interesting to note that the ccs didn't talk to the rcmp so there are two things one is the police wing and one is the inter there was a lack of coordination there was a rivalry there was a whole lot of stuff i spoke to one of the embassy officials actually two days ago and i have his notes actually on my table he said he sent 36 what is the word he used aid aid dimash he used and he says telling the canadians there is a clear and present danger that there is going to be a bombing of an indian asset either it's the consulate either it's the high commission or it could be the aircraft or state bank of india in canada right right and he's got all these and he says you know it went to the rcmp it went through the intelligence wing of the consulate they took it really seriously of the of the foreign commission i think it's foreign ministry in canada they took it really seriously but when it went to the rcmp they didn't know whether it dried out or it went forward to ccs now i've seen recordings and images of letters which rcmp have written on the 3rd of june 1985 talking about this there is an imminent danger to air india and we should look. have you heard and ccs turned on and said we've not heard yet there are recordings that the fbi has video and audio which which talk that we are going to destroy them we are going to blow up you know planes we're going they were going to kill rajiv and at madison square garden they were this is all right this is all what do, you, what do you think was the motive was was it complacency do they are, do they just see this as some foreign problem and even if it's happening on canadian soil or north american soil it somehow is not going to impact them i mean what what are you some know, theories that are out there in those years i was too young and and naive to even think of anything till we came to the you know a criminal trial uh when they were acquitted i remember you know saying two things that you know it was like as though my family had died again yeah that day in 2005 to watch these guys ro- you know walk free and and uh, you know make up all sorts of rubbish and the second thing so hard which i've said consistently in the last 38 years or 37 years actually the first year i didn't say this was that had this been a plane full of occasions or whites right you would have had justice in the year 1 or you it took 20 years for somebody to move you know the legal systems because there was pressure because there was pushing because you know because we were just brown people indians nobody gave a damn really and the tragedy is and i'll, and I'll say this because you know it's not because it's politically leaning to left or right or center in india but it's just that uh they were scared of even taking sides in india you know we didn't want to start an investigation into this because 
This was a crime that happened somewhere else. It's in somebody else's backyard. Forget it. We don't want to upset, you know, Sikhs. But let me tell you, the Sikhs are a beautiful race. I mean, they're a fantastic community. They're the most loving and the most generous kind of community you'd find on earth. But these guys are terrorists, this little group. They're only one, not even 1% of, of, you know, the entire Sikh community and they're killers. You don't bunch them with the rest. You should have looked at who the terrorists were and go after them. They're, it's not, you know, you don't paint it by a religion or by a, by a creed or by a caste or by a, a community. No. You know, communities are beautiful things. They belong to a certain God. They follow a certain way of life. And, and you know, just like I go to temples, I go to the Gurdwara. I've been to the, you know, uh, Golden Temple. I've been to a number of Gurdwaras. So I don't, I don't look at it uh, in the sense that, you know, both the governments just didn't want to do anything with this, frankly. They wanted to leave it. But look at the Americans. I want to tell you this. The moment they heard of a threat to the Prime Minister of India on a state visit to meet Reagan, the Secret Service and the FBI land up in Canada. They go to this guy's house with the CSIS. You know, they interrogate him. Because they had a, see, the, the intelligence was shared. The RCMP, the CSIS, the Secret Service go and, you know, check it out. And they put warning signs on, on the road that, you know, in a sense, hey, dude, if you're coming to kill a foreign head of state in my soil, I'm going to, you know, blow you to smithereens. So it's not that nobody knew. 3rd of June is when Rajiv was in there. 20 days later is when this happens. Right. Right. So, uh, there were warning flags. I think it was, it was lack of, you know, I won't call it conspiracy, but it was a lack of cohesion. There was lack of communication between two wings. And like I've heard so many, you know, CSIS officers say it was their policy at the time to destroy tapes. You record surveillance on a criminal or a terrorist and you hear about him making a bomb and then you destroy that tape. That's what they did in those days. And they kept transcripts, however. But to reuse the tapes, they destroyed the, you know, the recording. They basically microwaved it, frame, you know, fried it, and then re-recorded. So they erased the tapes. When it came to trial, this is what the judge said, Joseph said, that, you know, you have transcripts. And the transcripts talk of all these things. But the transcripts are worthless without the supporting evidence of Substantiation. Absolutely. You have to substantiate and so, say, you know, I'm sorry, we can't use this. And there were 600 tapes. Wow. Which were thousands of hours of recording. You know, the big spool tapes, big, huge ones. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a gross tragedy. I mean, it's, it's a grave miscarriage. My family would have been alive had somebody listened to, you know, and that offer. And, and, and the worst part is, it was a cover-up. They buried all this for 15, 20 years. You and I couldn't hear of this. And this came out only after the criminal trial. That's when we started all pushing for an commi open commission of inquiry. Right. And that took, you know, another five to seven years. And then, they, you know, they appointed the justice of the retired justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Justice John Major. 
and he interviewed more than 300 witnesses i i believe i was one of you know those with independent standing who spoke there my organization cabin crew association spoke there there were 911 organizations that spoke there about terrorism and about investigations there were families you know from canada from india from europe and from 911 survivors you know people families of some who had all come to give testimony there and it went on for ages and it's a two part huge two volumes of of a report which which talk of a massive cover up you know failed information failed information gathering uh, lack of care lack of everything and uh, you know they just got away the terrorists got away it's simple as that mm-hmm. uh, it's also another matter that you know uh, one of them got killed when he came to India, to Pakistan. Uh, that's Parmar. Mm-hmm. And Riyadh was in jail for the longest time till he was paroled. Um, Bagri and, and, you know, Malik just, you know, escaped. Malik with a small minor thing and Bagri with really nothing. And there were others. But we never could get to the bottom of it because, um, you know, they dropped the ball. They dropped the ball and, and uh, there was no way of recovering. And what's happened now is that um, we are, you know, I was at the anniversary last this year. And of course, I must say at the 20th, when you had the prime minister of Canada and, you know, foreign ministers of India, plus prime minister's office, India, president of Ireland, everybody promises you the earth and the moon and the stars in the sky. But nobody really delivers on, you know, on the promises. And, and that's been the thing, except for Stephen Harper, who was then the Prime Minister of Canada. And he appointed Justice John Major. And that's how we got something out of this. It was, you know, it's not closure, but it's some answers. Absolutely. Now what's happened in, in, in 2023 and 2022, people have forgotten that that took place. People believe it never happened. I mean, there are, you know, these terrorists have turned their killers into heroes as though they were freedom fighters. They were not. They killed 800 babies on that aircraft. You know, that aircraft is full of children. And, and they killed, you know, it's it's crazy. The amount of, of loss of life. Nobody sat to sit back and analyze their plan. It was not one aircraft. It was two aircrafts. It was not one aircraft in the air and one on a baggage rack. They want both bombs to go off at two airports while they were refueling those aircraft. It would have been carnage. Just imagine. Right, right. People probably not synchronize the timings. If you look at, you know, the GMT calculator and you see, you'll note this flight from Canada into London was delayed by 92 minutes or 97 minutes because the engine on it Right. There was some consequent delay because why? The X-ray machine mysteriously failed on that day, hmm. which never happened. Additional security was sought by the Indian government and Air India, which came, but the machine failed. They used handheld beepers, buzzers, which didn't seem to work. People didn't know how to use them. So the bag that carried forward had no passenger, but a bomb that came in. The other bag went to Japan. 
had this flight been on time it would have landed into it was about an hour and 11 minutes out of london heathrow it would have already been on ground right people deplaning or still waiting to deplane had that cpa been on time to tokyo this bomb would have already been on the air india aircraft with passengers on board and ready to depart do you know what would have happened if the bomb had exploded at that time my god there would have been aircrafts on the left on the right there would have been fuel tanks it would have been just so this wasn't something that was done in the back of a garage this was a very you know precise guided bomb plan wasn't one and and how they linked one to the other was because very very you know incredible story the bomb that blew up in narita on the belt and killed those two baggage handlers left some embedded some parts in the wall of the tuna that it was built in sanyo tuna and and uh, th- those tuners were made by sanyo which was a japanese company track the part and they track the model and that model there were only 2000 of that model made in that year the previous year it used a different tuner different uh, component all 2000 were only sold in vancouver and the british columbia area so they they tracked which outlet sold it and ccs had surveillance footage of this guy buying parts for the bombs he had you know it was like a kid putting a jigsaw puzzle together they could have done this way in advance because they knew the guy was going there he was buying explosives he was buying tuners he was buying stuff like this and that's how they cross referenced it to the bombing in the atlantic they found pieces of this so you know one met the other and 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 they married and they realized so it's it's uh, you know it's not smoke and mirrors like a lot of the the other side wants you to believe right and, and unfortunately we've got two generations of of indians of americans of canadians of britishers of human beings on earth who've grown up and forgotten that this occurred and forgotten what actually happened you know everybody knows what happened in 911 and nobody will say that you know there was someone else at the control and not you know momonata or or something like that people know who did it you know nobody will wake up and call osama bin laden you know a cleric who was praying right. they know he was a bomber and a killer exactly. so the same way the guys you know who are preaching death and preaching violence in canada and who did blow up this aircraft were definitely not warriors or preachers of any kind because no, no religion preaches this exactly well on that um i'm sorry on, on that note i just i i want to just tell our our listeners to be on the lookout for your trilogy um on angels wings you have it perfect is it going to be available on amazon it will be on the 30th of november and uh, i'll send you a you know uh, a link to this and uh, yeah it's it's part 1 deals with you know the bombing and my life thereafter and how we fought for these inquiries stuff like that part 2 deals with the back story and the evidence and how uh, that's the blood of angels that will release you know in 
and uh, the third part will be released for next year's anniversary. So all three parts are already, you know, done and and because I want people to to uh, to remember this. We, this is a crime that cannot be forgotten, and nobody should twist the narrative. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I definitely want my colleague Samir Kalra to have a conversation with you on the backstory, uh, as um, you know, as we see that history has a very um, it, it doesn't take that long for it to intersect with the current events and with everything that's been going on with India-Canadian relations. Um, I think that's also an important thing. Hopefully we'll be able to get your time again uh, to have that conversation. Um, but thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, well, it's, 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 my pleasure. It's, uh, it's been, you know, I was very emotional at, at certain points. It was, you know, it's, Cathartic. It's it's you know you you relive it every time you speak about it, but it's a story that needs to be told. And and I, I thank you for you know having given me the opportunity and the time. Uh, it's 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 a part of history that every nation needs to remember. I feel. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.